you, saints. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24 will be our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. And as you turn there, I just want to affirm up front that I love preaching the Word of God. I love Sovereign Grace Bible Church, and I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's no place else I'd rather be as I get to preach the Word of God with Sovereign Grace Bible Church, all for the glory and exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I thank God for this church and the way it's ministered to my life and the legacy of this church in the South Bay, and I anticipate that the Lord will continue to use this local congregation for His glory and for the good of the community. And so we continue to pray over at Redeem South Bay for the well-being of this church. We truly appreciate and love you guys, and praise God for each and every one of you. That said, I now invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.20, but that is not the way You learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let us pray. Lord, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We understand that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so what we're asking is that by your spirit you would attend the proclamation of your word that we might be conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from from one degree of glory to the next, that you would be glorified, that we would be built up and edified, and that we would benefit those around us. Teach us by your spirit through your word. Transform us and help us to live for your glory and not our own. Have your way this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you undoubtedly know, the second half of the book of Ephesians exhorts Christians to go about their daily lives on the basis of their relationship and union with none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Christians, that is, those who have trusted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, have been given a new status all by the grace of God, and that new status is to be expressed in a new direction of life, or to briefly say that, we have a new status that we might live in a new direction. The new status is the reality of the position that we have been given via our salvation And we find this in the very first chapter of Ephesians chapter 1. We understand that God the Father blessed us and chose us and predestined us for adoption as sons in Christ before the foundation of the world. Chapter 1 verses 3 through 6. And so we could say that our salvation was arranged, if you will, by God the Father. But not only that, we also understand that God... The Son, that is Jesus Christ himself, came 
into the world through the Virgin Mary to redeem and forgive those chosen by the Father through his blood. That is, through the sinless life, the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believers have been redeemed by God so that we and all things might be united in Christ. We see that in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 1. So we might say that our salvation was accomplished by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is none other than God the Son. But we continue in chapter 1, and we see more than that, that God the Spirit sealed us as we heard and as we believed and were saved by the word of truth. That is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, it is God the Spirit who abides in believers who is the guarantee, praise the Lord, of our inheritance that we await in Christ Jesus, verses 13 through 14. So we understand that our salvation was applied by the Spirit of God. And this new status we have in Christ through our salvation is by grace and to the glory of of God alone. And so what we do in, in light of this truth is we exclaim the realities of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, which we've already heard this morning, and we cry out for by grace. We have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that not a one of us can boast. But beloved, do not overlook the fact that our new status in Christ is not only enabling, but also commanding of us to live in a new direction. We can't overlook this, brothers and sisters, that this new status necessitates, if you will, that our direction, our path, our walk is completely and totally different than what it once was. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 speaks of this new direction in Christ as it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what we have in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 and 6 is an exposition of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. It is no coincidence that Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we should walk in good works and that Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6 tells us five ways to walk so that we might stand firm as indicated at the end of chapter 6. Five ways to walk. Number one is this. We are to walk in unity. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Then we're to walk in holiness. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Then we are to walk in love. We see that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Commanded to walk in light, chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. And we are to walk in wisdom. Chapter 5, verse 15, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And these five walks, if you will, lead to the reality that we are to stand in warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. We see in chapter 6, verse 11, we, we are to stand against the schemes of the devil. We see in verse 13 that we are to stand firm. And then finally in verse 14, we are told to stand Therefore, after we get the full armor of God following. And so, once again, our status in Christ necessitates, enables, and commands a walk that displays and is rooted in our status in Christ. And so this morning, we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the second way to walk, that is to walk in holiness. Again, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, or as verse 17 explicitly states, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, teach us that the Gentiles, that is, in this context, pagan unbelievers, have a different position and therefore a different practice than Christians do. Look with me, please, at verses 17 through 19 of Ephesians 4. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds because of their position. And what is that position of unbelievers? They are, number one, darkened in their understanding. Number two, alienated from the life of God. And number three, hardened of heart. And therefore, they ought to have a different walk than Christians do as they give themselves up to sensuality and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And the remainder of chapter 4 follows the same pattern of that which we just saw in verses 17 through 19. But instead of the position and practice of unbelieving Gentiles being explained, the position and practice of Christians are explained. And so our passage this morning, verses 20 through 24, explains the position of Christians for the purpose of encouraging the practice of Christians, which we see in verses 25 through 32. Or in other words, verses 20 through 24 serve to recall the realities of chapters 1 through 3 to remind believers of their position in Christ for the purpose of facilitating their walk in holiness, which again is specified in verses 25 through 32. So next week, my... Fellow pastor Jeff will be preaching Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. This week, we're going to focus on the position of Christians. And this brings us to the main idea of our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, establishes two aspects of learning Christ so that a true understanding of your position in Christ would lead to proper practice in Christ. This text establishes two aspects of learning Christ so that a true understanding of your position in Christ, saint, would lead to proper practice in Christ. And very simply, those two aspects of learning are negative learning. We'll look at that in verse 20. And then positive learning. We'll look at that in verses 21 through 24. Let's first begin with negative learning. In verse 20, once again, look with me, please, at verse 20. Paul simply says, But that is not the way you learned Christ. And what we have in this verse is an emphatic contrast with the preceding three verses and an anticipation of the content of the next four verses. It's a hinge, if you will. It is the logical portal that connects the ideas that proceed with the ideas that follow. And we have to ask ourselves the questions, in what way did the church not learn Christ? In what way did the church not learn Christ? And this verse reaches back to the manner in which the Gentiles function. In verses 17 and 19, the way that the unbelieving Gentile mind functions is not the way that the church came to learn Christ. There is a way in which Christ is not to be learned. We don't don't have the freedom to depict any kind of Christ in our minds and say, well, his, his name is Christ and we believe him. No, there's a specific way that Christians, that the church are to learn Christ And there's a way not to learn Christ. The way of the world, the way of pagan Gentiles, in this case, is not the way that Christians learn Christ. The conduct of the world is not how the church learned Christ. 
And we've already briefly reviewed, briefly reviewed verses 17 and 19. And there's really one takeaway that, that we must draw from those verses regarding the way in which the unbelieving world learns or conceives of spiritual realities. And it is this, that they lean on their own understanding. That is, they are wise in their own eyes. The natural person leans on his or her own understanding and they're wise in their own eyes. And the problem with that is that the text tells us unbelievers are futile of mind, verse 17, that they are darkened in their own understanding, verse 18, that they are excluded from the life of God, verse 18, that they are ignorant, hard-hearted, verse 18 again, and that they are callous, verse 19. And that is the position of the unbeliever. And before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to realize that that was the position of each and every one of us before we came to the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there's no person in this room or on this earth who, who has not been in this position. And we as a church have to be careful because you know what's really easy to do in our day and age? To look outside of the church and have some kind of self-righteousness. At least I'm not this. At least I'm not that. Look at them out there. But we would be wise to realize that we were once them out there. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Ephesians 2 tells us. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, In you, he's talking to the church, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. If we remember that, if we get that, then we're humbled before an awesome and mighty God who has the right to exercise his wrath. But then we get to verse 4. If we understand that the sinful nature, if we understand who we once were before Christ, then when we get to those two famous words, our hearts explode in praise to God. This is who you were but God. And as we continue to read in Ephesians chapter 2, we praise God that he is able to make dead men alive in Christ. And that is what Paul is getting back to in our passage in Ephesians 4. He is saying that there is a way that unbelievers conduct themselves on the basis of their position, but that is not the way you learned Christ, church. Because God has graciously put you in a new position. Praise the Lord. Even though you were once in the very same position as unbelievers are. How were we put in that new position is the question, and we'll get to answering that question when we get to the positive aspect of learning Christ in a little bit. But before we go there, we need to, to make a distinction. And I want to distinguish between learning about Christ and learning Christ. I want to distinguish between learning about Christ and learning Christ. The text says, this is not the way you learned Christ. The text does not say, learned about Christ. Believers, by the grace of God, have learned Christ. A lot of people learn about a lot of things. A lot of people have learned about Christ. A lot of unbelievers have heard about Christ. A lot of the people in our churches know a lot about Christ. But true believers, yes, might know a lot about Christ, but they know more than that. 
They know Christ because they have learned Christ himself. One commentator put it this way, the the implication is that factual learning is insufficient. The goal is to know Christ personally. The goal is to know Christ personally. The initial learning of Christ occurs at conversion when we acknowledge him as he truly is. Let us not think, of course, that our learning of Christ ceases at conversion. We understand what Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the command to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we understand that we continue to learn Christ, if you will. Nevertheless, believers have truly and really learned Christ. It often expresses itself in the way that we talk about Christ. When we start using personal and possessive pronouns. Not just statements of fact, Jesus Christ did this, that, and the other, but my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ died for me. Friend, do you know Christ this morning? Do you know Christ? Not about Christ. But do you know Christ? Is he your Lord and your Savior? Did God place your sins upon him such that you, each and every morning when you're at your best, say, Christ died for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Each and every one of us has to answer that question. True believers have learned Christ. Well, we know how we have not learned Christ, but then the question is, how have we learned Christ? We don't learn Christ in the way that the pagan Gentiles do, but how do we learn Christ? And this brings us to our second aspect of learning, which is positive learning. We'll spend more time, obviously there's more verses covered here, And in verses 21 through 24, there are many features or many details of positively learning Christ. And I want to outline them in a way that would hopefully, helpfully serve you. So I want to outline four features of positive learning. Four features of positive learning. There's active learning. There's passive learning. There's objective learning. And there's transformative learning. Active learning. Passive learning objective learning, and transformative learning. And so under positive learning, let us consider active learning in the very first part of verse 21. And what I mean by active learning is I mean that we participate in our learning by hearing. It says in verse 21, the first part of it, assuming that you have heard about him. But that is not the way you learn Christ, And then verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him. And this translation may lead us to believe that Paul had to assume that the Ephesians somehow or maybe heard about Christ without him actually knowing if they did or if they did not hear about Christ. But that is not the case. What we have here in in Greek grammar is a first-class condition, and really all that means is that Paul is assuming the reality of verses 21 through 24, and so we could understand it in this way. The idea is, you did not learn Christ in this way, verse 20, if you heard about him, and I know that you did. That's the idea here. So what we have in verses 21 through 24 is the manner and the content of the church's learning of Christ, which Paul was certain of. That is why you may find in some of your translations, people start this verse with when or since or in as much as you heard about Christ. And this idea of active learning is that of hearing. Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus how they participated in their learning of Christ, and that was by hearing. Why is Paul certain of this? 
Well, we remind ourselves in part that Paul is certain of this because he was the one who planted the church and and spent roughly three years in Ephesus with them. And although Paul had not been in Ephesus for a few years, five or six years perhaps, he was the one through whom many heard the voice of Christ in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, the literal rendering of the Greek text could be translated, if indeed you heard him, meaning Christ. If indeed you heard him. Not about him, but heard him. And some translations have it that way. Well, why is this important? Well, it's important because it reminds me of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about his sheep hearing his voice. His sheep hearing his voice. And what we understand and was what, what was already mentioned this morning is that through the proclamation, through the proclamation of the word, the voice of Christ can be heard. And so as the voice of Christ is heard and as the apostles preach, here what we have before our very eyes today is the preservation of the word of Christ in written form, if you will, what we call the precious scriptures. And this is one of the reasons why we, and I know in a church like this, you guys do this, but we want to pray for for all of the churches to do what? To rightly divide and preach the scriptures. The church is to simply preach the word of God. That can look different ways, but this is the authoritative word of God by which the voice of Christ is heard. And so what we remind ourselves is this isn't just some man talking for an hour, but no, the word of Christ is being proclaimed and I have an opportunity when I step foot in this building and with the saints to hear the word of Christ, the voice of Christ, that I might be conformed into the image of Christ. That is our aim, is to present the word of God so that people might hear the voice of Christ. And we must remember that we're culpable, if you will. As the word of God is proclaimed, it is on us to hear the word of the Lord. And yes, I'm well aware of the fact that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And I'm well aware of the fact that one must be born again to even perceive the kingdom of God. And I'm well aware of the fact that the the natural man doesn't understand, can't comprehend the things of God. But I also am well aware of the fact that we are to actively participate in the learning of Christ by hearing. And Paul reminds the Ephesians of their position in Christ. Why? Because they had heard the voice of Christ through the word of Christ. And so saints, let me encourage you. You've heard Christ. And this is to be one of the features of learning Christ that perpetuates and encourages you toward walking in holiness. This brings us to the second feature of positive learning. That's passive learning. Continuing in verse 21, he says, and you were taught in him. And all I mean by passive learning is, yes, we are to hear, we are to to listen, we are to hear the voice of Christ, but at the very same time, we are recipients of instruction. And that's what I mean by passive learning. Not only did the Ephesians hear about Christ or hear the voice of Christ through apostolic proclamation, but they were also taught in Christ. So we can think of it in this way, that, that Christ is the realm or the sphere or the location wherein Christians are taught. And this is a picture of our union with Christ, that Christ comes to us through his word such that he is both the object and the location of Christian teaching. What a gracious God. On one hand, we understand that we were chosen He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We understand that, the doctrine of election, but we also understand that there's a time from our subjective standpoint, our human experience, that that we come to know Christ. And that's what Paul is reminding the Ephesians about. As he would go there and proclaim, they were taught 
in communion and in connection with Christ by means of the word. If I can be so bold as to say that Christ himself comes to his people by means of his word such that he is truly with us in the word so that we might truly learn him. And we understand that in our day and age, it's really nothing new under the sun, but many people want to have some experience, some existentialism. They say things like, I felt God, or I sensed God, or I had a vision from God. I once had a man tell me that he knew the Holy Spirit was, was present in his prayer ministry because as he was praying for someone, that person began to shake. And if that is the standard by which you and I are to measure the Spirit's activity in our, measure, in our ministry, then, then we're in trouble. Beloved, realize and, and hold fast to, to this biblical emphasis that after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the primary means by which we experience God is through his word, whether preached or penned. Now, I have to be careful here, especially because I'm a guest preacher, so let me qualify this. Don't mishear me. I, I am not saying that we do not experience God. That's not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, as I understand Philippians 4 and Paul commands us to rejoice. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. And he says, let our requests be made known to God through prayer and supplication. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. I have no other way to explain that. That's an experiential thing, that we experience the peace of God. So I'm not arguing that we don't experience God. But what I am arguing is that the presence of the Word is our primary experience of God. Such that if it's Word-based and the truth of Scripture is brought to bear, we experience God through the reality of His Word. And this seems to be the biblical concept. And Paul is saying to the Ephesians, you learn Christ by hearing Him and by being taught in Him, which is through the Word. And so saints, you have been taught in Christ. And again, Paul is simply stating what occurred. So why? So that the church might be perpetuated toward walking in holiness. This brings us to our third feature of positive learning, objective learning. All this is glorious. Paul says, as the truth is in Jesus, as the truth is in Jesus. And so when I say objective learning, I'm speaking of the nature of our learning, or better yet, the nature of our instruction. We can just sigh, brothers and sisters, and affirm that the truth is in Jesus. I don't have to look elsewhere. And so thus far, Paul has said, you did not learn Christ in the way that the world functions, he says, the unbelieving world functions on the basis of their futile minds, on the basis of their ignorance. You did not learn Christ that way, he says. Rather, you heard Christ and you were taught in Christ, and thus you learned Christ. Why is this so important? Because the truth is in Jesus. Paul identifies Jesus of Nazareth as Christ. It's one and the same. The truth is is in Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. In other words, the one whom you have learned is the source and standard of truth. Jesus, and Jesus alone is the absolute one. Ultimate objectivity is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth that me measures all other truth claims. Or simply, as Jesus would put it in John 14, 6, I'm the way the truth, and the life. Let us take note that Jesus, who is the truth, who is the word, prayed to the Father for his disciples in John 17, 17, and he prayed in this way, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. 
And so, beloved, what we have here is, is the reality that Jesus is the living word of truth who told his disciples that he would be with them to the very end of the age. You remember that from Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, as he gives them the great commission and he gives them those final encouraging words, and lo, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And so Jesus, the living word of truth, told his disciples that he would send the spirit of truth to teach them and to remind them and to lead them in truth. We see that most clearly in John 14 and John 16. Why why did he tell them this? So that the disciples might preach and write of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And so follow me now. Jesus is the living word of truth. And the truth that is Jesus was attested to in the apostles' proclaimed word of truth as the Spirit did exactly what Jesus told his disciples the Spirit would do. And the truth that is Jesus is preserved in the written word of the truth that is the Scriptures, or as Psalm 119 verse 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. And what I want to impress upon us once again is the reality that we cannot separate the living word of truth, the proclaimed word of truth, and the written word of truth. For Jesus has been faithful to reveal himself to his people through his earthly ministry, through apostolic preaching in the first century, and through the scriptures. Why am I belaboring this point? You might be asking yourself that at this point. Well, let me tell you first why it's important to the Ephesians and then why it's important to us. Why in the world was the fact that Jesus is the truth important to the Ephesians. Because they lived in a world that saw themselves as the standard of truth, which is diametrically opposed to the actual truth, who is Jesus. Why in the world is this important to you and I nearly 2,000 years later? Because nothing's changed. Because nothing's changed. We live in a world who sees himself as the source and standard of truth. You even hear taglines of your truth. And there is no objectivity as long as we're all living our truth. Beloved, the most loving thing that we can do is to confront that lie which is from the pit of hell. And to come alongside our neighbors and our friends and sometimes even our family members Say, I know the truth. And his name is Jesus. I was praying from this pulpit this morning that, that this local church would not shrink back, but be bold in the proclamation of the gospel. Beloved, Jesus is the truth. And you can trust his word. So I want to encourage you this morning not to fall into temptation. Don't fall into the way of the world Why? Because you didn't learn Christ that way, Sovereign Grace Bible Church. You didn't learn Christ that way. But rather you you heard him and you were taught in him the truth is in Jesus. And because the truth is in Jesus, we are to proclaim it. But before we proclaim it, we have to remind ourselves of it. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's saying, saints, the truth is in Jesus. This is the way that you learn him. And this is to be one of the features of learning Christ that perpetuates you toward walking in holiness. And this brings us to the fourth feature of positive learning in verses 22 through 24. And I'm calling it transformative learning. Let let me do a recap and then we'll, we'll go through these verses rather quickly. But up to this point, we have heard... Uh, negative learning and three features of positive learning. The first two features of positive learning speak of the manner in which believers learn Christ. They hear him and they were taught in him. The third feature speaks of the the nature of the instruction that learning Christ is, is it's objective. And so we call that objective learning. Namely, we truly learn Christ because Christ is the truth. 
But this fourth and final feature of positive learning really speaks of the content of our learning. And it's transformative in this sense that learning Christ coincides with immediate and genuine change. This is not a popular thing to preach in most churches in America. That truly learning Christ culminates in immediate and genuine change. Not perfection, but true change. We're talking about direction, not perfection here. And so what Paul provides for us in verses 22 through 24 is a reality that has already happened as a result of learning Christ. In other words, we were taught in him, and the content of what we were taught is provided in verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. The content of Christian instruction in these verses is the reason why, if you skip forward to verse 25, notice what it says there. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Paul gives us what we were taught, the result having, being having put away falsehood, and then he gives us commands. So he's reminding the church, when you came to Christ, when you learned Christ, this is what occurred. And so therefore, we better get to work, in other words. Look with me at these, what I'm going to call three realities of transformative learning. They're very simple. They're three infinitives. Verse 22, to put off. Verse 23, to be renewed. And verse 24, to put on. To put off, to be renewed, and to put on. Let's look first at to put off in verse 22. This is the content of what we were taught. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Learning Christ, in part, means that we acknowledge the sinful nature of the unregenerate natural man at conversion. That we truly have an old self. That in Christ has been put off. And we've already looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, one through three which speaks of our spiritual death. It tells us there's a way that we once walked and it was terrible, it was wretched, it was rugged. But look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Paul says, Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. And anytime we read through the book of Ephesians, we have to see how often the Apostle Paul tells us to remember what we once were. We are to remember what we once were so that we might magnify the glory of God's grace. And so he says, Remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And listen to what he says here. This was our status in Christ, this is, or outside of Christ. This is the old self. Remember that you were at that time, what? Separated from Christ. That you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God. I don't know about you, but that was my status before I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I wasn't aware of it, but when I sat under the preaching of the Word of God, the Spirit of God made me aware of the reality that I'm separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Christ, that old self, that old status, that old reality is put off. We saw it in verses 17 through 19 of chapter 4 as well. But in Christ, that has been put off. But not only has that been put off, there's something more that's happened. Look at this in verse 23. This is the second of three realities in transformative learning. He says, not only were we taught to put off, but we were also taught to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so what we have in verses 22 through 24 are these three imperatives to, to put off and to be renewed and to put on. 
But in the Greek text, verse 23 is the only one that's in the present tense. And the only reason why that's significant is that it indicates for us that at conversion, the regenerate man has put off the old self and has been renewed in his mind and is to put on the new self, but also that the renewal of the spirit of the mind is to be continual. Yes, it's immediate and initial, but it's also continual. And this makes us think of what? Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. And so we were taught in Christ to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. But lastly, verse 24, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Beloved, this is real transition. This is real transformation. We remember that Adam and Eve created in the image of God. The Lord says that explicitly in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, he declares all his creation is very good. But then the fall of man due to man's sin, as recorded in Genesis chapter 3, indicates that the image of God was diminished but not destroyed. Why is this a big deal? Because it highlights for us the beauty of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That whatever Adam lost or or whatever was marred in Adam in the fall was regained by the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, such that those in Christ are new creations in Christ in accordance with God's likeness. That is true Righteousness and holiness. I get uh, concerned sometimes, saints, because I I consider myself uh, a man who loves Reformed theology. And so what do we champion? We champion those solas over there, don't we? And we talk about we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Amen to that, right? But be careful. Because if we don't also champion that by that salvation, there's also spiritual enablement. That we are being transformed into the image of Christ. What we can do is we can preach the solas, but not care as much about our sanctification. This should never be the case. Should never be the case. I have so many Reformed brothers who just, by faith, by faith, by faith. But look at your life, brother. Look at your life, sister. The way that we show those solas to be true is by how we conduct ourselves. Still by the grace of God and still for the glory of God. And so those who have learned Christ have put off the old and been renewed and they've put on. It's the imputed righteousness and holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that gives us confidence to stand before God. But it's also the imputed righteousness and holiness of Christ that enables us to practically live in increasing measures of righteousness and holiness. Or as Paul would just put it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 18, speaking of this new self, if you will, he says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. And so, saints, I just want to encourage you that you have learned Christ. You've put off the old, you have been renewed, you have put on the new, all by the grace of God. And this is to be one of the features 
of learning Christ that per- perpetuates you and I toward walking in holiness. In conclusion, very simply, we've seen two aspects of learning Christ, both negative and positive. The biggest thing I want us to take away from this before we get to the commands in verses 25 through 32 next week is Paul's flow of logic and his purpose. He's encouraging the saints of how and when and in the manner that they came to the Lord Jesus Christ before he gives command after command after command after command. We understand that the the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. It's our joy and it's our delight and it's our duty to submit to the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. But say, if you don't remember that you've learned Christ in the way that you've learned Christ, those commands can very easily turn into legalism, can very easily turn into us trying to earn God's favor. But we understand we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, Lord, help us to live in light of that reality. That's what Paul's doing here in Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. But next week, in the next passage, he'll tell us specifically what that looks like. May God help each and every one of us to remember who we are in Christ such that we might walk accordingly. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we have learned Christ not in the way that the world functions, but in the way that you have commanded through the presentation of your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, through the Word, by the Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but that you loved us enough to send someone into our lives to proclaim the truth of the gospel such that we heard the voice of Christ and we were taught in Christ. As the truth is in Christ, that we learn to put off the old self, to be renewed in our minds, and to put on the new self. Lord, would this encourage our hearts, edify our souls, that we might walk in holiness for your glory, for our good, for the well-being of those under our influence. We ask these things in Jesus' name.